Jason. And uh, soon, since we just had our AGM, you're going to see two new faces up here eventually, Norman and, and Dean, who have been elected as two new elders at our church. Can we give a round of applause for those men? Elder prayer is one, of the, is one of the most important parts of our service, and I'm so thankful that uh, these men come up here and pray, uh, even if some of them, like Mark, don't like to. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue in our series uh, on the book of 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in chapter 6 today, and we're going to be camping out in verses one to eight. So I'm just going to read through the scripture and then we're going to walk through it verse by verse and see what the Lord has for us today. Verse one says of chapter six, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the, uh, uh, before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, you are incompetent to try trivial cases. Do you not know that you are, the, uh, you are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such ca cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. I want to just play really quickly a word association game with you. So I'm going to say a word. And then I want you uh, uh, to say the first thing that comes to your mind when I say this word. Now, remember where you are. You're in church, okay? So as, as, or as Jason said, right, let's be holy, okay? Uh, but the first thing, Christmas dinner. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, what about a concert? Music. Music. L loud, yeah. Well, okay, good. So we don't have any real Baptist sinners, right? No, okay. Uh, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, mowing the lawn. Exercise, labor. Wow, no one's saying, no one's saying horrible like I would say. That's uh, why I bought a property with like the smallest piece of grass. Okay, what about jury duty? Pardon? Boring, yeah. Yeah, not a lot of us have positive thoughts about jury duty. And if anyone's saying stuff in the balcony, I apologize, I can't hear you. But uh, we don't have a lot of positive thoughts about jury duty. But everybody loves Christmas dinner. If you don't, then you're not welcome here. Oh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, if you don't, you're a Grinch. No. <laughs> oh, what am I trying to say? Yeah, but uh, a rock concert, right? Concerts most of us would enjoy. Mowing the lawn, maybe you're half and half like I am. Uh, but jury duty is almost 100% no-go. We have better things to do than to sit in, uh, in jury duty and listen to a case. But jury duty, court systems, was very much a part of the Corinthian culture. They loved it. It was part of their entertainment. The courts actually took place right in the center of marketplaces, not behind closed doors, but right in the center of a public area. And people would go there, even if they weren't there for jury duty, they would go there, they would listen in, they would get the hot gossip, they would sit in on criminal cases, and they would sit in on civil cases. People suing people after suing people, being charged, all of it was very very public. Maybe we need to bring that back to shame a little, you know, I don't know, but uh, to stop some of the crime. But it was right at the core 
of the Corinthian culture. And you can bet, since we've now in chapter 6, the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, had so many problems, it's not a surprise that one of the problems that they had was that they as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, those who attend at the same church, were dragging one another to court over trivial cases, as we saw in our text. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Aaron, we've looked at the text I don't have positive feelings about jury duty. I don't plan on suing the person sitting next to me anytime soon. Could I just sneak out the back door and get a good start on my barbecue for Father's Day? How is this going to apply to my life? How is this even relevant to us? But this text holds fundamentally a principle that we should all understand, and it's this. How do we as Christians respond when another Christian treats us badly? What, Christians treating Christians poorly? Is that a thing? Yeah, by the laugh, I think we've all experienced it. We have all experienced being treated wrong by our brothers and sisters in the Lord. So how do we respond when that happens? In the modern day, maybe we don't sue, but you know what we do? We head to the other church and bring all of our problems there, right? And then we get mad when something doesn't go our way there, so we go to the next church, and the next church, before you know it, you're like, ah, I'm done with church. I don't need church. Maybe the church doesn't really need you. Maybe, that's, maybe you're the common denominator. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. But we, we, we jump away. We run away. And, and we all have experiences with this. But in the Corinthian culture, what they would do were to jump right to suing one another over small civil matters. Now, you may not regularly find yourself in a courtroom, and you may not plan on suing another brother and sister in this church, but that desire to be proven right in front of others, to, to make someone who did wrong to you pay that price so you can balance in your own mind justice, that is something we all struggle with. Amen? Come on, if you can't say amen, you have to say ouch, right? right? So it's something we all struggle with. And even the church, right, it's supposed to be a place of humility, harmony, and holiness, But so often the church can be a place of pride, conflict, and selfishness, right? And and rather than being a place that we are shaped by the gospel, so often our churches are shaped by the culture. And that's what we're seeing here in the Corinthian church. They were being shaped by the idea of going to court. This was normal and natural to drag someone publicly to shame them and to bring accusation against them so your name is cleared. And in chapter 6, it's showing us that all the conflicts that we have looked at from chapters 1 to 5, all of those conflicts are coming to a head, and they're coming to a head in a very public manner in worldly lawsuits. Because remember, there was lots of problems in this church. They were dividing themselves into camps, right? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, who is Peter, and, and, and they were, and they were following after the wisdom of the world, the sexual ethics of the world. And now we see that they deal with their conflict the exact same way the world does. But the church is to be set apart, right? The church, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be holy. But they were indistinguishable from the world in many parts. The church, the Corinthian church, had the inability to resolve conflicts. And there were a sense, and they were in a sense, sorry, outsourcing their conflict resolution for trivial 
cases. And the Corinthians were failing to practice the way Jesus laid out for how the church deals with conflict. We looked at this a few weeks ago in chapter 5, but remember in Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a three-point plan that we're supposed to follow. What do we do when Christians wrong us? Well, step one, you go to them, right? You go to them, you have a candid conversation, one-on-one. If that doesn't work, you go to step two, where you bring some trusted friends, and, and they can determine if the charges are founded. And if that doesn't work, then you bring it to the church membership. That's the Jesus way of handling conflict. But the Corinthian way to handle conflict was just to jump to lawsuits. There's no one-on-one. There is no needing of a witness. You don't include the church. You don't try to resolve the conflict on your own. No, you immediately drag the person to court. And what this was doing was damaging the church's reputation in front of the world. And this was really damaging the relationships that were happening within the church. How well could we function as a church if we were scared of each other suing each other, right? It was, it was crippling the church and its, and its family. So Paul is concerned about that. So he brings it to attention here in chapter 6. But it's important before we go walking through the scripture again, it's important that as we look at our verses that Paul is talking about trivial cases here. And I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul is saying. Paul is not trying to undermine the authority of legal systems in his day, and we shouldn't be trying to either in our day. Churches have gotten a lot of trouble when they've tried to handle internally something that really ought to be handled by the civil authorities. Yeah, you you can just read about the Southern Baptist Convention, right? They were trying to cover up sexual abuses in so many churches, and they were trying to deal with that internally, and it blew up in their face. Some things have to be outsourced. But not, this is not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about abuse. He's not talking about criminal activity. He's, he, he's talking about simple, everyday offenses, just relational conflicts of people who are family in Christ trying to do life together, and sometimes you rub each other the wrong way, and they were suing over that. So Paul's not abdicating here that we, uh, as a church, try to cover up scandals. He is not abdicating that the church does not cooperate with law enforcement or judges or civil authorities when necessary, when necessary, right? So we need to be clear because I think we have all read enough headlines to know sometimes churches try to handle things internally that should be externally, and it goes wrong. Because they are matters that concern the state as well. So nothing illegal has taken place here in the Corinthian culture. No crime has been committed. So this is what Paul is focusing on, is these trivial, sorry, uh, uh, these small everyday cases. The problem here is the Corinthians had little respect for the church's ability and authority to settle disputes and disagreements among their members. And really, they had every right to have little respect for that because the elders were failing in this. Right? The, the church, once again, was getting rid of their responsibility to discipline their church family. We saw this in the end of chapter 5 with the man who was sleeping with his stepmother. And they weren't doing anything about it. So you can kind of sense why the members are outsourcing their discipline because the elders aren't being elders. They're not shepherding their church. There's probably few faithful. There's always faithful, but the majority are on a crash course with sin. So here are the brothers and sisters in Christ who are taking one another to court over trivial matters, over things that should get resolved the Jesus way, and the elders are failing to direct them that way. So with all that in mind, 
Let's look at verse 1 again, which says, and I hope you have your Bibles open. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul's saying, would you dare? Would you dare? Just like in chapter 5 when he says, it's actually reported among you that there's sexual immorality that even the pagans say is crazy. He's, he's flabbergasted. Would you dare to do that? He's credulous. He's shocked. He's surprised that rather than following the Jesus model that he laid out for us that he, that, and, and, and bringing witnesses and going to one-on-one, they were rushing off to the marketplace to handle this all in, por- in court. So what's happening here is the church is failing to resolve conflict. And there's three things that happen that take place when the church fails to resolve conflict conflict. Uh, When the church members fail to reach out to one another to deal with offenses and grievances and interpersonalities, and when the church leaders fail to see the infighting that's taking place, three things happen. My clicker's not working. Sorry. You might have to click onto the screen. There we go. Three things happen. There we go. Okay, three things happen. The first one is the church fail, uh, when they fail, is we misunderstand our status as saints. Paul says at the end of verse one that you go to the law of the unrighteous instead of the saints. And the word unrighteous in the Greek can also be translated as wicked or unjust. Now, Paul is not saying that the judges in Corinth are bad at being judges or that they're corrupt, although there was lots of corruption in the Greco-Roman court system. Just look at the life of Paul in the book of Acts, right? There was lots of shady deals going on. But what Paul is intending here when he says the unrighteous is the same thing what Jesus was saying when he says the Father causes it to rain and shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. Right, So the word unrighteous there is just a biblical way of talking about those who are not of Christ. So notice the contrast. He is saying you are bringing these legal cases before the unrighteous judge instead of the saints who are Christians. Paul is concerned that non-believers, or sorry, Paul is contrasting non-believers with Christians, and and that's what he's going after. So he calls the unbelievers unrighteous, and he calls the Christians saints. And that's not new for Paul. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling Christians saints because that's what we are as followers of Christ. Being a saint is not a special category like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's not a special uh, group of elite Christians. If you are saved by grace through faith, you are a saint. You are a holy one. That's what it means. And as Paul says in chapter 1, you are being sanctified, which is like the verb of being a saint. You are being made holy. You are being made like Christ because you are a saint. You are made holy by Christ. And when we go to the secular, to the worldly courts over small trivial matters instead of the saints, we are losing status of who we are in Christ. And he says in verse 2, do you not know? Right? This is a rhetorical question. I think 
in chapter 6, there's about eight rhetorical questions. Or do you not know the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? He's saying, do you not realize, Christian, that you are giving up your responsibility to resolve these minor cases? You are going to secular courts. You're going to the unrighteous. You're going to the unbeliever, uh, unbelieving judges who, who are now have authority over you. Do you not recognize that one day you, as a Christian, are going to judge those judges? That one day you are going to judge the whole world? Loved ones, Christians, there is a sense in which, and we're not entirely sure all the details on how it all works out, but because of our judgment, our sin being taken care of on the cross, when Christ comes again in glory and he's meeting out judgment to the whole universe, we will participate in some capacity in executing God's judgment. This is even rooted in his creation of mankind. When Adam and Eve, when they were first created in Genesis chapter 1, he blessed them and gave them what? Dominion. He gave them dominion, meaning they were supposed to rule as kings and queens, as vice regents over the world. And when God will make all things new again, and he will, when he returns with the new heavens and earth, we will reign with Christ. And reigning with Christ will involve judging with Christ. But the Corinthians, like many Christians today, were short-sighted. They were focused on the here and now. They forgot their status as saints, who they were in Christ Jesus, and what they will accomplish through his shed blood. They weren't thinking about the end. They weren't thinking about where they were headed. They weren't thinking of the great, glorious victory that has already been won on their behalf that will come to fulfillment in the end. They were too busy, like often we are, getting upset with the person that offended them. And Paul says, listen, get it in perspective. I know you're really upset. But think about what's coming your way. Think about what is yours in Christ. Get it in perspective. You are a saint. You are a holy one. Live like it. And then he takes it a step further in verse 3 in your Bibles. He says, do you not know that, you, uh, that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Okay, what's interesting, <laughs> you read through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is not a scholarly opinion. This is my sinful, dumb opinion, okay? Paul gets bored and just throws angels into the epistle every once in a while. Because, like, I, honestly, it comes up so randomly. Like, we're going to talk about head coverings in, in, in a few uh, months. And, uh, and he says, because of the angels. And you go, what are you talking about? And, uh, and here he's talking about judging angels. And, and he says, if I can speak in tongues of angels. And you're going, what is going on? Now there is explanation to all of this. But it does seem at first glance that it's so random. And I hope you have questions like I did when I read this. Because every time you're reading the Bible, you should ask him questions. It's how you study. And I said, well, are these the good angels? Are these angels that are serving God right now, that are protecting us right now? Or are these the fallen angels that fell with Lucifer? Are we going to be in some way, shape, or form judging fallen angels? Like, Paul, give us a little bit more detail here. I don't know what this means. But 
Spending time on trying to figure out which angels we are going to judge is missing the point of the passage that Paul is trying to aim us towards. Because what Paul is trying to convey is he's trying to show us that our, he's trying to put our lives in perspective by showing us that what our inheritance is, what our status as followers of Jesus Christ is, he is trying to elevate our position. Why are you so focused on these trivial, dumb human things? You're going to judge angels one day. Think about that. We are saints in this world. The things of this world that we so often get obsessed about and worry about and and freaked out about. Guess what? We're going to judge those things. We're going to reign over those things with Christ. And not only that... In some way, shape, or form, we're going to judge angels as well. And that should cause you to go, wow, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. Me? I get to judge angels? It should humble you. And verse 2 puts it all in perspective for us. He says, we are going to judge the world, and since that's the case, where aren't we able to solve these trivial trial, uh, uh, issues? And Paul's saying, can't you figure it out amongst yourselves? Can't you trust God in these small matters in light of where you're headed? And then in verse 3, he says, you're going to judge angels. And finishes that verse with a powerful statement saying, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? He's saying, get it in perspective, church. Stop being so selfish. Stop being so prideful. Stop being so centered on conflict and and, and have a little sense of the holiness that is yours, that is in you, that you are to be. And the humility that comes with knowing that God has made you a sinner, an enemy of his, who is destined for eternal damnation. He has made you a saint. By his shed blood on the cross, through Jesus Christ, you are made a saint. Feel the humility of that. Live in light of that. And let's live in harmony with one another, he's saying. And in not so much conflict. Conflict makes the church, internal conflict makes the church wildly ineffective. So let's deal with it. So when the church fails to solve conflict, we first see that we have a misunderstanding as our status as saints. That's the first thing that happens. And the second thing that happens is we mis, uh, oh, no, two, sorry. We misrepresent the church to the world. We see this in verse four to six. It says, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. So what he is saying is, what he's saying is is all of this is happening so publicly in front of the unbelieving world. Remember, the courtrooms didn't happen behind closed doors. It happened right in the center of the Costco shopping center, right? That's how public it was. It was, in the, it was like the public shopping centers, and they had no phones back then, so you better believe it. They had nothing distracting them, and they wanted to get the hot, juicy details on their neighbor, and so they can share it around their table that night. 
They were listening. They were watching. You got to think of these court settings kind of like live music on the street or street performers. It would draw people and people would stand in and they would listen in on people's legal battles. And it was their form of, inter- their form of entertainment. And this is all happening, Paul says, before unbelievers. So just picture it. The judge, he's going to the, to the plaintiff. Oh, Mr. Plaintiff, can you tell us your relationship with the defendant? Everyone leans in. Okay, let's get the details. The whole world is listening. And the plaintiff goes, <clears throat> um, well, we go to the same church together. <laughs> they were misrepresenting the church to the world. Paul's concerned about the witness of the church to the watching world, and so should we. This was a double failure for the church of Corinth. Not only were these brothers and sisters in conflict that they weren't able to solve, which was fail number one, but fail number two is that lawsuits were happening so publicly and they were dragging each other to court. Now, again, we don't regularly sue one another as a church. I don't believe in the 90 years of history anyone sued each other in this church. I could be wrong. Ron could tell me, but I'm not sure. Um, but it's probably happened. It's probably happened in some other churches. But you know what we do do? What we are guilty of is we groan and we complain about our brothers and sisters in Christ all the time. And sometimes we do this in front of our unsaved friends, family, and coworkers. We complain about issues happening in the church to the watching world. Oh, it's so nice to be around you guys because those Christians are crazy. And we wonder why they won't step in our church because we shared all of the dirty laundry that is just a part of being a family that should be, be dealt with between the walls of the church. And if I could speak for a moment to the larger church community, we see people posting and airing dirty laundry all over social media about other saints whom they have issues with that they should be dealing with the Jesus way. And in the age of the internet, things go public very, very quickly. Right? You, you, uh, some of the advice I heard once, and I, I hold this dear, and I actually practice this. If I'm angry, and I have to write an email... I type out my angry, horrible email. You can leave it to the morning. I read it through carefully, and then I delete it, and then I start over. Leave it to the morning, leave it, and come back, read it, and, and then because you, you need to calm down. But the problem is with social media is we get on our phones, we record videos, we type out Facebook conversations, and we hit post without even thinking. And we air dirty laundry without realizing the horrible ramifications this has on the church at large. We need to think before we hit the post button. And now, of course, there are some things that need to go public. One that I was thinking of as I was prepping for this is Ravi Zacharias and his horrible, hideous abuse, sexual abuse between women. And his covering up and pretending to be a Christian. And there is a sense that that needs to go public because he's a public figure and he sinned so grievously and it needed to go public to protect the church. But not these types of situations that Paul is talking about. This is all happening before unbelievers. These petty family grievances tarnishing the reputation of the church. And Paul says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. You should feel that. 
I say this to your shame. He also says in verse 5, there is no one among you, can't anyone, isn't anyone you can trust, isn't there a mature believer that you can go to to mediate? Isn't there anyone among you wise enough? And remember, he's, he's, he's a master with words, Paul. The Corinthian church was obsessed with wisdom. They longed for to be known and had a grip on worldly wisdom. This is why Paul, back in chapter 1, had to clarify he doesn't preach the gospel with the wisdom of the world because if he did, the cross would be emptied of its power. And then he talks about the wisdom he does preach in chapter 2, and he says it's a spiritual wisdom from God. And then in chapter 3, he said, if you think you're wise, you better become a fool. You better learn that you're not actually wise. And then in chapter 4, when he was contrasting the experiences of the apostles versus the Corinthians, using sarcasm, he says, oh, you, oh, you, Corinthians, you're, you're wise, but we, we are fools. The church of Corinth was obsessed with wisdom. They was obsessed with sounding smart, being eloquent, quoting philosophers, making Christianity fit into a box of their philosophical perspectives of the world that they were living in. They were continually talking about wisdom, but they were not living it. Paul's saying in a sense, I thought you were the wise church. I thought you were the wisdom church. And he's throwing arrows in their false dichotomy of wisdom. Isn't there anyone among you, O church of wisdom, who is wise enough to deal with these issues? You see, wisdom is not just talk. Wisdom is problem solving. It's practical. It's conflict resolution. And the church at Corinth just didn't have it. It was a church filled with pride. They thought they were wise. It was a church filled with conflict and selfishness. They didn't care about their brothers next to them. It wasn't a church that was filled with humility, harmony, and holiness. So we need to be conscious ourselves here in 2023 as our status as saints, as, we, as where we are headed, that we are going to judge the world and angels with Christ. And we should be able as a church here to deal with and handle these trivial and minor things. We've got to deal with them head on. The church, we represent Christ to the world and they are watching and we have to maintain that witness we don't fake it but we maintain the witness of christ that there that that is so often destroyed by infighting in the church but lastly paul keeps calling them brothers why he keeps saying brothers are dragging brothers to court they're having disputes with other brothers and this can both mean brothers and sisters so women I know it's father's day but you're not off the hook okay this is talking to you too because Paul is trying to put in perspective for the church that these disputes are happening because they are family and they should deal with it as family so here's the third thing that happens when we fail to resolve conflict we end up mistreating members of God's family now, Lego, Lego, when it goes missing in the Visser household, <laughs> is a very big deal. <laughs> Levi loves Lego, my son. And if, and if a piece goes missing, it's not just a big deal to Levi. Many of you might not know this, but my wife, Bailey, loves Lego. 
I absolutely hate Lego. I have no patience for putting those stupid little blocks together, and if I step on them, it finds the garbage, okay? But when a piece goes missing, accusations start to fly, all right? I saw you with the Lego. You were alone with the Lego for five minutes. Where did it go? And I always default to blame Levi because he's three and he can't defend himself. But the Lego is a big deal in our household, but it stays in our household until today. Um, <laughs> we don't go running into the street. We don't go gathering all the neighbors because it's a family thing. And family things should stay within the family. Now, I'm just being humorous about the Lego. It's not that big of a deal in our household. But what I've been trying to portray is that family things stay within the family. But don't hear me wrong. If Levi were to ever commit something illegal, you better believe it. I'd be the first one calling the police. I'd be taking him to the authority because the fact that we are family doesn't change the fact that he broke the law. But when it's trivial, when it's within the family, you solve it as a family. You don't include the neighbors. You don't go on social media. You don't call the local news. You don't write blog posts. You handle it as a family. And this is what the Corinthians were missing. They wanted to be proven right so bad that they did it at any expense. They wanted the person who offended them to get hurt because they were hurt, and they wanted to hurt back. And they had totally lost sight of their witness in the world, and they had totally lost sight of the person that they are taking to court is actually their brother and sister in the Lord. So Paul here is telling them in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not su rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. What Paul is saying here is be, that there, uh, to be a family, uh, Paul says this should be, sorry, a family issue and you have lost sight of the fact that you are a family as a church. And Paul is astounded that even brothers and sisters are dragging each other to court. Now what he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Right? Why do you go to court? You go to court to win. You don't go to court just to have fun. You go to court to win because you want to be proven right. But Paul's saying here, since you, even if you win the case, the fact that you have legal battles at all with each other is already a defeat. You've already lost. It's a defeat for you. And then he lays out some other options that we should consider. Why not rather just be defrauded? Why not rather just suffer the wrong? Why not if I could be so bold, just live like a Christian. I mean, this isn't a new teaching in the Bible. Paul isn't making something up here to, uh, to be wrong, to just deal with it, to be defrauded. That's something that's consistent with the teaching of our Lord and Savior. Again, these are trivial cases. I'm not talking about major grievances. I'm talking about trivial, minor offenses. We even see this in, in Proverbs 19.11 that says, God, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's the wisdom of Solomon. But Jesus uses the same wisdom in his Sermon on the Mount. He says in Matthew 5 to 39, or sorry, verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. 
And I would say, how much more should we turn the other cheek if it's one of our brothers and sisters in Christ who could have very well been intentional or could have very well been an accident or unintentional? Don't drag them to court. Don't try to prove that you are right. Again, Peter, talking to our Savior, he says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And if you're counting, you've already lost, okay? So this is the Jesus way. The Jesus way, when we're offended, yes, can be when it's, when it's bigger than just minor offenses. Go to them, talk with them, work it out, bring witnesses, take it to the church if you have to. But often, in these small, trivial cases, the Jesus way is to just forgive the person and move on. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.15. It says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. What he's talking about when he says don't uh, uh, repay evil with evil, he's talking not just about the evil done to us by non-believers. He's talking to us to the evil that is done to us by other Christians. And we know this by the language he uses by saying, seek to do good to one another. That's church talk in the Bible. That's biblical talk for the church. Romans 12, 17 says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. So I ask you again. Why not rather just be defrauded? Think about what this will do to the church family and the church witness. Think about eternity and where you are headed as saints. And factor that in, not just, why not? Can I let myself just be defrauded and wronged in these trivial cases? But Paul knows this wasn't happening, which is why he says in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And that word, uh, the word doesn't come through that well wrong in our English translations. It doesn't carry the same weight as it does in the Greek. But remember the word that I talked about for unrighteous when he was saying you go before unrighteous judge. That word is atticos in the Greek. And this word wronged is the verbal form of atticos and you pronounce it as atticaio. And it's basically the same word, but verb form. So what it means is to act wickedly or sinfully or wrong. So what Paul is saying is, well, as you're wronging these people, as you're defrauding your brothers, a good translation could just be, you are unrighteousing each other. You are unrighteousing your brothers or sisters. What's he doing there? He's calling them saints, but again, once again, they're behaving like the unrighteous world around them. You're treating one another in unrighteous, wicked ways, just like the world. And Paul says it can't go on. You're again being immature believers, acting like the world. You're not acting like the saints that you are in Christ. But we must ask the question then, as I close, what does it mean, or sorry, how is it possible to allow ourselves to be defrauded? It's not easy. It comes with a specific type of mindset. And you have to have the type of mindset that you have nothing to lose because you have everything in Christ. The person who goes to court for these trivial things, they believe they have something to lose. That's why they feel they must be proven right. The person who must be proven right in all their arguments and they go around bad-mouthing the person behind their backs to other people, telling them again and again what they've been wronged by and, and how they've done it, that person, they have everything to lose because their hope is in the world. 
whether it be their reputation, their wealth, their status, whatever it might be, their hope is in the world and they have everything to lose. But when you have nothing to lose, you can gladly suffer wrong. Remember, we are saints. We have been given everything in Christ Jesus and we don't deserve it. We are going to judge the world and angels. Remember back a few weeks ago to chapter 3, verse 22, Paul says, all things are yours. Apollos, Paul, life, death, future, everything is yours in Christ Jesus, church. You have nothing to lose. By all means, suffer wrong because you have nothing to lose. You see, we can lose sight of the gospel. And when we lose sight of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, what he's purchased for us, and who he has called us to be, we easily get offended by what other people do and what other people say. And we need to be proven right, and we start to unrighteous each other. We're supposed to behave like the world. And we're going to look at verse 9, not at the church in the park next week, but the week after. Uh, we're going to look, and I'll just give you a glimpse of next, or, uh, July 2nd sermon. He says in verse 9, you, do you not know that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of heaven? So what does that mean when we're acting unrighteous to each other? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why are you acting unrighteous? You are a saint. You are going to inherit the kingdom of God. You are co-heirs with Christ. You are ambassadors of Christ. Church, it's time to start acting like it. And if Jesus, who is treated so woefully wrong as the righteous, innocent man, and we are called to model that in our lives. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. The first thing I want to do is get even too when someone does something harmful to me. But it means for the sake of others and not just yourself, to see the body of Christ healthy and unified and holy. But I must close one more, or add one more time and reiterate to you that I'm talking about trivial, minor cases. I'm not talking about major grievances. I'm not talking about spiritual abuse. I'm not talking about sexual abuse. I'm not talking about a neglect in those ways. But sadly, church, this is the reality. The trivial issues, the small things, are often the things that hinder a church, that split a church, not the major things. The major things actually have the opposite effect normally in the church gathers. But these small, trivial things destroy us like cancer. So we need to rid ourselves of them. Amen, FBC? Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you, O Lord, that just seeming a little bit of a random uh, chunk of verses in your scripture about lawsuits, Lord, God, I pray that the principle behind these verses of this desire of always being proven right always wanting to get even, Lord, would ring true in our hearts that we must rid ourselves of such practices. And rather, Lord, we must remind ourselves of who we are in Christ Jesus, that we are blood-bought believers, that we are sanctified through Christ, that we are secured by the Holy Spirit, and that we will inherit the kingdom of God as co-heirs with Christ, and we will judge and rule and reign with our Lord Jesus. Father, may that be at the forefront of our mind the next time we are rubbed the wrong way by one of our beloved brothers or sisters in this church, that, Lord, we would seek reconciliation, Lord, that we would seek love above all else. I thank you, O oh Lord, for this amazing church that sits before me, that we do so often work through 
and strive to love each other. And God, I pray that would continue to be our practice and it would just grow and grow from there. Lord, as we go to worship through song of your holy name, Father, would you just bless us, Lord, as we bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.